Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Offering sound advice for your car, home and travel insurance needs. Tweet at Miriam O'Call. Singer-songwriter Thomas Walsh is no stranger to this studio. He's been here with Neil Hannan and the Duckworth-Lewis Method and with his old band Pugwash. And today he's accompanied by Colm Quirney and he's still writing beautiful pop songs. We're going to have a chat about life and loss and how he writes those songs in a moment. But first, this is a song from Thomas Walsh's latest album, The Rest is History, and this is We Knew. One of these days I'll cry Twenty-five years went by Gone in a winking eye That's beautiful, Thomas. That's We Knew one of your new songs from your latest album, which is The Rest is History. Come over and sit down. Listen, that song, I know, it's very personal. Do you mind telling me a little about it, why you wrote it and who it's about? Yeah, well, good morning, Miriam. It's great hmm. to see you. But uh, no, honestly, uh, that's a very... It came out as a very personal song because it was it was a real-life situation of someone that was very close to me years ago that had an addiction, hit it very well, Um it was varying things, mm-hmm. but ultimately it came out in an alcohol addiction. And uh, I think, I still think, whatever we may say in this country about addiction and stuff, uh, alcohol addiction will never be. It, it will always be, ah, just get over yourself. That's something that really has to change because I've just seen, I've seen too many people mm-hmm. die at like 48, 50, 52, 30, you know, just dying mm-hmm. of this disease. And... It, for me, the people that were around me back in them days, uh, the kind of 90s and Celtic mm. time, was a lot of drinking, a lot of bad stuff. So some people didn't come out of that. And this song was about a person who didn't come out of that. And uh, she she died at 52. And she went from being, honestly, pin-up stuff to something I... When I went into Sear... I don't want to get too morbid to say what I want to mean, but when I went in to see her before she passed, uh, I had to wear a special suit because she was so frail. I mean, she was about five stone mm. and she looked about 100 years old. And it's so hard, isn't it? Because obviously you loved this person, yeah. but until they want to help themselves yeah. or accept they have a problem, there's not much you can do. I know that from even doing stories about it. It's just so difficult, isn't it's, it? it? And that's another thing that really annoys me because I'm, you know, I've had a weight problem since I was a kid and I, I got control of it now and again and then I didn't and it went weird and then I have all these other issues when you get older. But uh, the basic thing is if I don't want to change, if it's not in my head, it's not a laziness, it's just that you can't force yourself. It's impossible to force yourself. It's like you might as well be, you know, trying to push a mountain or something. It's impossible. But it's hard to explain that to people because a lot of people will say, oh, I'll get your act together. Just get up and get out. Mm-hmm. Just go for a walk. You know, these are all brilliant things. <laughs> and I understand people who don't suffer with these things. Uh, it's very easy to say them. But even them saying them is a real stressful thing. 
You mentioned there, you know, you have your own issues. We've spoken in the past, Thomas, yeah. about mental health and weight issues. But you were saying, did you all, did you say you had a weight issue when you were even young? Oh, God, I was about, I think I was three talkies when I was born. <laughs> I think that was the equivalent. My poor mother, you know, I think she was walking bandy for about the next 20 years. But then, now she, yeah. Uh, but yeah, my mother gave birth, it was about 14 pounds or something. Or something ridiculous. Oh. The thing was, I, I remember my mother always saying to me, they were giving me sugared water on the second day to shut me up. So this would have you been You were hungry. Thing. Well, this would have been a thing. This would have I was hungry. That's what I was. I just wanted a pot noodle, I think. But they weren't <laughs> invented then. But uh, So I, I just think, you know, that, that that's a great example of, A, it's in my DNA anyway, whatever this is. But... Uh, I suppose when I was one day old getting sugared water, I was like, okay, I think I'm going to like Twixes when I'm 55. But things can happen in life where you go down a particular road and you never deal with it. Mm-hmm. So when I was 13, I could have just kept playing for CIE football club because I was signed to CIE. But two weeks after I signed with them, I was hit by a stolen car. I mean, how life changed. So I was, I was really lucky to survive that. Were you badly injured? Oh, yeah. And that's the thing, all my, all my schoolmates went because I had to go back two years behind, you know that kind of thing? Because mm. I was out for a year and a half. So my whole life just went askew. And then I liked home feelings, you know, I liked to be at home. Because whenever I went out, I started, this is incredible. This is like, you always do this to me. <laughs> the revelation interview. But you know, I, I developed panic attacks from being on crutches when I was that young. My first one I ever had was in church. So I sit up the front of the church with my big cast on, and I sit there going, oh, church. Oh, God, yeah, here we go, blah, blah. And next of all, I went, what if I had to get up now and walk out? Everyone would be looking at me. Everyone. So my heart started racing, racing. And I just got this incredible whack over me and didn't know what it was. And I had to run out. And, of course, everyone was looking at me. And that was panic attack one. And then I suffered with them for years, years. Do you still suffer with them? Uh, they're, they're always there, but thankfully modern medicine. And now it's not anything like I'm doped up or anything. It's amazing because you can feel something coming on, then it kind of just dissipates. But you write the most beautiful songs, Thomas. So do you find being able to be that creative, being able to write those songs and those lyrics soothes you and helps you in your life? The, the, the worst, most stressful thing in my life is writing songs. <laughs> no, honestly, you're right though, it, because you know what's going to happen at the end. It works, but the process is quite tough. I always remember, I always remember Billy Joel. Yeah. Is it Billy Joel or Billy Joel? I think it's Joel. Yeah, I don't think he'll mind. It's definitely David Bowie, it's not Bowie. No, I agree We're not with that. Bowie. But Billy Joel said years ago that he, he hated the process. He used to sweat blood over lyrics and stuff and... Yeah. And you kind of go, Billy Joel, he's incredible. It just flows. Yeah. It's like that for me. It's I fight everything. It's basically every part of my body kind of goes to everywhere else apart from picking the guitar up and writing a song. So suddenly I'm going, oh, I could have a chicken sandwich now. I have a chicken sandwich. No, that didn't do it. You know, I'll watch a movie. Well, that was good. Didn't do it. Other things you could do in life. But they don't work. And then all of a sudden, the very last thing, you go, hold on the guitar. Hold on. And all of a sudden, four songs come out. That's the way I work. Now, Neil Hannon, as an example, sits down most days. Now, I'm not assuming this with Neil, but from what I've known of Neil over the years, he just writes or kind of sits every day and it's always percolating, you know? Yeah. His brain, it's always on. And that's why he is a Hollywood star now. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, with his Wonka and all that. Because Unbelievable. He puts the hard hours in. I just can't do it. It's like part of my DNA. It's tough. It's just tougher to do it. But maybe you're happier doing it the way you're doing it. Or well, are you not? Well, I'll tell you, his, his, his new house looks very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, he's such an amazing influence, though, and inspiration. Yeah, lovely he's, guy. Too. Uh, he's yeah. such, but the thing is, he, you know, not to get on the Neil show, but, you know, he... We've helped each other, which is great. I think I'm very honoured that as well because there's an element of Neil's writing where he can go really heavy and deep into the process. And then sometimes I come along and go, yeah, but it was done two weeks ago. And then he goes, oh, yes, it was, actually. And then a lot of times with me, if I have a lyric, he'd say, that's good, but it could be a little bit. So he made me go that extra, that extra kind of yard with the lyrics and stuff, which I loved. The track, of course, was recorded, the one you just played in Abbey Road Studios. How did you swing that? And was it great to do that? Well, it's not an egotistical thing either for me to go there and go, oh, the Beatles place. And oh, uh, 20 years ago, actually, was the first time I went to Abbey Road to record. And it's always because, A, it's cheaper than here. It's the gospel truth. Really? Yeah. It's a perfect place, but it's also great buzz because, and I love to bring a few people, you know, um, you know, do you want to go see Abbey Road for the first time? People get really excited to say, just say I carry my guitar in. Is it an inspirational yes. place to work? Yes. Yeah, and the sound is a one-off. So it's just great. Do you like the music industry? I've interviewed quite a number of people down the years who, who find it tough enough. You write your own songs. That's obviously where it's the best thing to do because you can get returns for that. But do you find it a difficult industry? It's I am an absolute pariah here. But I do say this, and I, I love saying this because this is embarrassing. But I've never done a festival in Ireland, ever. Why? I'm very nice, Miriam, aren't I? You're super talented and you're lovely. And I always remember going to, I think it was Witness, do you remember what it was called, Witness? Yeah. I always remember going there as a guest of Air, the French band. Mm-hmm. And they just were there going, where can we see you then? You know, because I went and saw them, they were amazing. And I said, oh, I'm not playing. I'm just here as a guest to Jason. He says, but this is your home, this is your home festival. Are you not playing it? I says, no. He says, your album's incredible. We keep playing on the bus. He says, no, it's just... See, I never had the management, the money. I never played the game. I never did the whole little But you could thing. still play festivals. But I, honestly, at this stage now, I just don't want to. Do you not? No, absolutely not. Why? Because it's... It'd be token gesture now. No. Fatty's still alive. Stick him up on an acoustic stage. Don't think like that. I <laughs> oh, don't think it's like never that. never too it's late. The truth. It's truth. Yeah. And that's the thing, I think, Miriam, it's great to ask about that because I'm not here thinking I've been hard done by mm-hmm. in that respect. It's just I've got too old now to be dealing with all that anyway. But in the early days, it was just such a Celtic Tiger money thing. Is it because you didn't play the game? Yeah. I'm trying. Yeah. But what uh, is the game? The game is Lily's back in the day. Uh, hanging out every night, so you have to be a bit of an alcoholic, you know, unless you can control that and just be around. You have to be at certain things, you have to know certain people. So do you enjoy what you do? I love it. Okay. I love it because of the people, because I can directly see people reacting to it online. I mean, I've got fans in Australia, New Zealand, Chile, Argentina, all across Europe, America especially, and... There could be 10 people in Chile or 20 people in Germany, but it's it's a beautiful community of people. Where did you get your beautiful voice? Did one of your parents have a beautiful voice? Honestly, uh, I had a... There's an artistic bent in my mum's side 
my mum's brother was a bit off the wall, but he used to draw cartoons for the Times, I think. And wow. He used to do sculpturing and handcraft stuff. And But none of us were singers. There was no singers involved or anything like that. There was lots of Christmas parties, which we have recordings of, where, like, you know. And I used to love when my uncle would start singing and he'd be singing for 10 minutes. And I'd go, yay, when he'd finish a verse. And my mum would smack me around the ear. He's not finished. Oh, Jesus, he's been singing for 10 minutes. And then you go, you're off again. But so there's always been stuff around me. My mother and father loved their music. My mum loved Mario Lanza. My mm. dad loved Perry Como and Frank Sinatra. But then he liked the Carpenters as well and stuff like that. And Gilbert O'Sullivan was big. Remember how big Gilbert was? Yeah. Still is now. So yeah, So, uh, but I just, I heard ELO, I heard Jeff Lehman as a kid. And I said, oh God, he's good. Did any of your teachers believe in you and spot your voice? No. No? No. Well, my first gig was like a, in St. Michael's School and it was, used to go there for school assembly and all that stuff. And it was a play on one year, about 77. And I, I was Biddy Mulligan, the pride of the coon. And there was a huge crowd in, like all the parents and all. But I, I had to sing, she sells fish on a Friday, right, and all this stuff. And I had a real fish, but I pretended to throw it in the audience and the whole audience went, oh, and laughed. And I got this buzz. I was only about eight years old. I went, oh, well, that's something else. And that's where it started, I think. But it took me a while because the panic attacks. So I didn't really get out and play. And, and it was Colin Queenie's band, Dragonfly, that made me go out and see a band because they were so good. And then I just went, what have I been missing? Well, you're going to sing for us again. And it's lovely you mentioned Colm Kearney here, who's here accompanying you today, because yes. obviously he was an early influence on you. So well done, Colm. Mm. Um, what are you going to sing for us now? This is a good day for me, and it's a track that I, I wrote, first song I wrote with Mr Hannon since the Duckward Lewis days. But we've been hanging out a bit more lately, and you know, you never know what happens in the future. And uh, I'm very proud of it. It's called A Good Day For Me. Now listen, I hope you have a great 2024. Thanks, man. Um, your album's called The Rest Is History. Yes. Like the podcast, which came first? Oh, I came first for everything. Absolutely. But <laughs> it's coming out on Pink Final, by the way, at the end of this month. Keep an eye on that. Just go to my Facebook pages and stuff. Well, Thomas, I always love speaking to you. Best of luck. Thank I hope to you. see you at a festival later in the year. I'll be working <laughs> on that. The album is called The Rest Is History and accompanied again by the wonderful Colin Kearney. This is A Good Day For Me. She makes me smile in a bad way She makes me cry in a sad way But all in all it's a good day for me She takes me down to the subway 